Welcome to the Human Experience Podcast, the only podcast designed to fuse your left and right brain hemispheres and feed it the most entertaining and mentally engaging topics on the planet. As we approach our ascent, please make sure your frontal, temporal and occipital lobes are in their full upright position. As you take your seat of consciousness, relax your senses and allow us to take you on a journey. We are the Intimate Strangers. Thank you for listening. What's up, guys? Such an interesting episode here with Dr. Gabor Mate. I was palpably nervous for this episode. I mean, I'm nervous before all of our interviews, but I was especially nervous for this one. So, excuse my nervousness. Otherwise, really interesting episode here. Be sure to check out Dr. Mate's work. Also, please subscribe to us on YouTube, follow us on Twitter at TheHumanXP, and like our Facebook page. Thank you guys so much for listening. The human experience is moving through the reward pathways in your brain as we speak to my guest, best-selling author, world-renowned speaker, and lecturer, Dr. Gabor Mate. Dr. Mate, welcome to HXP. It's a pleasure to have you with us. Thank you. Dr. Mate, if you could just open this conversation with a brief introduction to who you are for the people that don't know, I think that would help lay the foundation. Sure. So I'm a medical doctor, uh, retired actually from medical work three years ago after 32 years. I worked in family practice. I worked in palliative care looking after terminally ill people. I was interested in child development, um, how the impact of early experience affects people throughout the lifetime. And then for 12 years, I worked in what is North America's most concentrated area of drug use, Vancouver's downtown east side, where I worked with people lived with HIV, drug addictions, hepatitis C, and all the complications of um, drug addiction and, and social ostracization. I've written four books, uh, including In the Realm of Hungry Ghost and Addiction, and When the Body Says No on the Mind, Body, Unity, and Health and Illness. And um, what I found over the years is that um, you can't separate human emotion from the physiology of human beings. You can't separate individuals from the environment. In other words, disease in a person is not a unitary, solitary, discrete event, but reflects their relationship to the environment, uh, including the social and psychological environment. I found, I found that um, that's true whether you have cancer or, or rheumatoid arthritis. I found that trauma is a fundamental influence in the onset of later disease and, and of mental illness, specifically addictions and other problems. In other words, there's a unity of a human life and that, and that how the, the environment we're born into, conceived in, reared in, has decisive influence on our health later on and the beliefs that we develop around ourselves based on those early experiences also have a huge impact on our health later on. Can we just start with, and I'd like to get into a few of the things that you mentioned, but let's start with how do we define addiction? Addiction is any, uh, characterizes any behavior that a person finds pleasure or relief uh, in the short term or craves uh, 
but his negative consequences in the long term and is unable to give it up despite those negative consequences. So craving, pleasure, relief in the short term, negative long-term consequence, inability to give it up. That's what an addiction is. And that's whether it's substances or sex or gambling or shopping, alcohol, whatever it is, that's what defines an addiction. Why do you think this is such a wide problem? Have you have you noticed that addictions are the same all over the world, or are they different based on societal groups? Oh, they're very cultural. It depends on where it's happening and why. And the, the common basis for addiction on the individual level is trauma. In other words, if you ask yourself, I mean, if, if you, Xavier, you listen to my definition of addiction, by that definition, can you tell me if you've ever had an addictive behavior in your life? Yeah, sure. Okay. What if you didn't say what was wrong with it? What was right about it? What did it do for you? Made me feel good. In what way? It removed the stress from my life. Okay. In other words, the addiction wasn't a problem. The addiction was your attempt to solve a problem of stress. So the so the real question is, why do you have so much stress in your life? And um, and uh, how is it that you didn't learn how to handle stress in a more um, autonomous and, and, and liberated way? And so, in other words, something happened to you. And so that what I'm saying about addiction is that it's always a response to something that happened. It's not just a disease that comes along for no reason. It's actually an attempt on the part of the individual to solve a problem that their life has presented them with. And so the more trauma there is, the more stress there is, the more childhood emotional loss there is, the more people then run to addictions to relieve the stress of all that or to relieve the pain of it. And so that you see addictions that in societies where there's a lot of trauma and you, see addiction, and you see addictions in cultures where there's a loss of the holding environment, there's a loss of the connection and the community and the contact that would help you deal with stress in more... Um, um, helpful ways. Yeah, I mean, I, I think one of the most important things that you mention is that people just want to be normal, and people are just trying to be normal. Can you get into that a bit more, please? Well, when, you ask, when, you, when I ask people, as I just asked you, well, what did the addiction do for you? They'll, they'll say, well, it, um, it uh, relieved stress, it helped me soothe my pain, it made me feel more connected. It gave me a sense of control. These are normal human qualities. I mean, this is we all want to feel in control. We all want to feel connected. We all want to feel the relief from pain. We all want to be able to deal with our stresses. These are normal human aspirations, and uh, there's nothing wrong with them. The, the real issue is why are people so bereft that they need to turn to an addictive behavior to give them these normal qualities that life should give them? So there's nothing remarkable about people's desire to experience normalcy. What's remarkable is why don't they? And for that, you have to look at the culture. You have to look at their environment. Strong, a strong thread in your work is the relationship between childhood trauma and how it affects their mental and physical health as an adult. I mean, how, how would you say how important is this to understanding addiction? Well, for addiction, it's crucial. Uh, as I mentioned, in the downtown side of Vancouver, which is North America's most um, dense area of drug use, in 12 years of work, 
Every single woman I've ever worked with had been sexually abused. Every single one as a child. Many of the men had been abused, traumatized, neglected, abandoned. Um, if you look at statistics on addiction, not just my own observations, huge correlationship between childhood trauma and addiction. And childhood trauma predisposes to addiction in a number of ways. Uh, number one, the very development of the brain depends on the environment. And so when children don't have the supporting, loving, nurturing environments, their brain circuits will be deprived of the chemicals that make them feel good. So then they want to do addictive behaviors to give them those same chemicals. So it affects brain development. Childhood trauma also, of course, is emotionally very painful. It's, it's very hurtful. You have this lifelong pain that you want to run away from. And addictions are all about running away from pain. Uh, then people are traumatized. The child who is traumatized does not recognize that there's something wrong with the world. They naturally assume that there's something wrong with them. So there's a tremendous sense of shame that many people grow up with if they were traumatized. It's all their fault. It's all because they're flawed. They're not worthy. They're deficient. So, so that underlies addiction. Um, so in, in, in a no, then a child who is uh, traumatized, there's a tremendous sense of isolation. The very essence of trauma is to isolate you from your environment. So you feel alone. So you get cut off from human contact. You feel this tremendous loneliness. You felt this tremendous being cut off from the universe, from, from any sense of spiritual connection. So all the things that people need are undermined and, and, and eroded by trauma. No wonder then trauma is the major factor in predisposing to addiction, which is unfortunately most addiction physicians don't even realize, but every single person they deal with is a traumatized human being. What would you say is the difference between ceremonial uh, usage, usages to expand consciousness versus a person sitting in their room kind of drinking themselves into oblivion? Human beings have used substances for thousands of years. Even alcohol. I mean, alcohol, they call it a spirit, right? Alcoholic spirits. So there's a connection to spirituality. And, and you can use almost any substance almost any substance, uh, certainly the natural occurring substances, Let, let's say, let's put it that way. You can use them ceremonially, take something like peyote, which the Native American church has been used for hundreds of years, maybe thousands, for reaching a higher level of consciousness, to be in community, to receive the teachings of the elders. Uh, it's to elevate your level of consciousness. Or you can use it to escape, you can use it to obtain yourself, to, to kill your pain, to to um, not to journey, but to go on a trip, you know, away from reality. So these substances, the natural ones anyway, traditionally they're often used ceremonially, and the same people that, that traditionally have used them ceremonially, once you traumatize them and culturally destroy them, we use the same substances in addictive ways. Defining question in, in substance use is not what substance are you using, but what is the context and what is the intention and what is the guidance that drives the, uh, the use of the substance? So, I mean, what do, we, what do we need to do as a society? I mean, the war on drugs seems like an abject failure. Well, the, the, the war on drugs is a failure only if you believe its premises. I mean, if the war on drugs is really intended to stop the use of drugs or to stop the trafficking of drugs, then you can say, well, it's a complete failure. But what if it isn't? What if the war on drugs is designed to keep people under control? What if the war on drugs is designed to keep a legal and police system um, well flush with funds? What if the purpose is the 
subjection of minority populations, mm -hmm. then then it's a major success. So let's not be too careful. Let's not be too quick to assume that it's a failure. Uh, but but yes, in terms of its stated purposes of stopping addiction, of interdicting the uh, the trafficking or the transport of drugs, it's a complete failure, and it's always doomed to be. Because as one American lawmaker judge said, he said uh, you can no longer, you can no more stop the, you can no more repeal the law of supply and demand than the law of gravity. So that if people are gonna want to use, they're gonna use. And the question is, why do they want to use? Because they're so much in pain. So if you wanna stop the use of drugs, begin with helping children not be traumatized. Create a society in which people, parents are supported. Uh, create a society in which Pregnant women are are supported right from the first parental visit in, in dealing with their stresses. Um, in other words, create a situation in which young people are not young children are not being hurt. Then you then you can protect them from addiction. Otherwise, you can't. So, what needs to happen on a social level is that we have to understand that actually we live in a toxic culture that hurts people, which incidentally happens to be the title of the book I'm not working on, I'm writing now, it's called Toxic Culture. And, and this society has so many ways of hurting people. Uh, I, I mean, I could speak for a whole hour about that. But if we really want to stop the use of addictive substances, we have to stop people from being hurt on a massive societal level. You you talk a lot about harm reduction. How How can we use harm reduction to benefit this understanding we have in regard to addiction? Well, in the context of, of, of drug treatment, harm reduction is a particular um, approach. Now, the ideal, of course, anybody who is addicted to a substance and is destroying themselves and people around them through their drug use, whether it's alcohol or crystal meth or whatever it is, ideally, they would quit. Ideally, they become abstinent. You know, so that they would be free of the drug use. And that's a useful goal, but it's not a realistic one for everybody. Some people, they're still too much in pain, their lives are in chaos, they need the drugs to feel any sense of relief. So harm reduction means giving somebody a clean needle. That means they're not going to inject themselves with HIV or pass it on to somebody else. Harm reduction means even helping them find a, a vein in their arms so they don't inject in their necks and give themselves a vein abscess. So harm reduction simply means reducing the harm from drug use. Harm reduction also means reducing the harm from the social ostracization and rejection of the drug addict. So I used to be the physician at a facility called the supervised injection site, which is the only site in North America, it's in Vancouver, where people can bring their drugs, illegal drugs, but they'll bring them in and they actually get to inject it under medical supervision. That reduces the harm. They're less likely to get HIV, they're less, less likely to get brain abscess, they're less likely to pass on infectious diseases to one another. That's what harm reduction Is there, in your opinion, a tipping point when something moves from a so-called normal level of behavior and then becomes an addiction? Again, if you look at my definition of addiction, if it brings you short-term relief or pleasure, but long-term negative consequences, you are in an addiction. It's a very simple test. Are there long-term negative consequences? 
Now, some people view, now some people may have difficulty recognizing that the behaviors have long-term negative consequences. Take a workaholic, which is a category that I certainly fit into. So you get all these great achievements and people love you because you're doing all this great work and all that. You might not even realize you've got an addiction, except if you look at what's happening to your family, your children are already being ignored and your marriage is suffering. You know? So so the question always is, are there negative consequences despite the short-term relief and the short-term craving? Hypoth- hypothetically speaking, in, in regards to drug addiction, do you do you think that if all legal drugs were legalized tomorrow, there would be an increase or decrease in drug addiction? Well, I don't think anybody's advocating legalization in a sense of should they be sold on the streets or in the corner stores. Nobody's advocating that. But we know that in jurisdictions such as, for example, in Portugal, where they have decriminalized the use of drugs, where if you possess drugs for your personal use, you're not going to be labeled a criminal. In those situations, and, and where drugs are provided, like heroin, for example, is provided to conf- confirmed heroin addicts under supervised conditions, we know that there's a decrease in drug use. And there's certainly a huge decrease in criminality and an increase in people seeking treatment. So from the per- perspective of the evidence, it's not even controversial. You know, as, as a society, do you think we are quick to treat mental and physical illness with medications? Well, again, um, the, the medical view of the illness, whether it's physical illness like cancer or mental illness like depression or, say, uh, ADHD, is that we're simply dealing with biological entities that needs to be fixed uh, uh, biologically. So whether through surgery or through biological manipulation of the brain, as with medications and so on, it's a very limited view. We don't recognize that both the physical illness and the mental illness reflect a person's lifelong relationship with their environment, and that um, and that the mind and the body can't be separated. So when things happen emotionally, things will happen physiologically. And that means that the treatment of all illness, whether it's cancer or depression or anxiety or any other mental illness, has to be more than just addressing the physiology. We have to recognize that the physiology reflects lifelong experience. The physiology doesn't cause the experience, it reflects the experience. It's a product of the experience. And then it causes more experience. So if, for example, if I was traumatized as a child, as a result, my brain circuits of serotonin and other brain chemicals aren't functioning so well, and I become depressed, then I'll behave in ways that are depressed, I'll create more suffering for myself. You know, but there's a lifelong interaction between the physiology and the emotions and my situation in society and my relationships. So that just to address the biological side of it, which is what we do with our drugs, is to miss the, both the cause and the solution. So, I speak as a physician who prescribed medications to people, and as a person who've taken them, I've benefited from them, I'm not against them, but they're not the answer. They're just a part of the answer, and they should be a small part of the answer. I'm kind of jumping around here through topics, but is it, in your opinion, is it possible to become addicted to anything? There's hardly any human behavior that's not 
conducive to addictive misuse um, takes something like meditation. People become addicted to meditation. Meditation sounds like a great thing, and it is. But what if they're using it to escape from their lives? What if they're trying to get to nice states of feeling or emoting or, or mental states because they can't deal with life the way it is out there? Then it can be addictive. And they're not actually they're not actually using the meditation meditation as a practice for life. They're using it to escape from life. Same with and the Buddha recognized that twenty five hundred years ago. He said anything can be addictive. Whatever it is. Uh, so naturally substances, alcohol, which which can be used in a convivial, communal way and often has been, can obviously be a, a deep source of suffering and addiction. Um, tobacco, which in native tradition has been used as the healing plant and as the teaching plant and as a focus of ceremony, can actually be, as we all know, the focus of a life-threatening addiction. So there's there's nothing there's nothing in this world that can become addictive, virtually nothing. It's it's not the it's not the behavior; it's one's internal relationship to it that defines whether it's addictive or not. Do you say that in your you've suffered from your your own addiction to shopping? How how did that affect your life? Well, when when I was spending eight thousand dollars a week on on, on on shopping for things I didn't need and uh, and ignoring my family and ignoring my work and 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 causing shame for myself, you can see how that would affect my life. Was there was there a single point that you? chose to recognize that or to stop? You know, there was no single point and I would continue for, for years after, I re- for years, I would recognize that it was damaging but I would still continue with it, which is typical of addicts. I mean, addicts know that their behavior is addictive, it's just that knowledge doesn't stop them. So for me, it was a process. And, um, and it has to be for everybody, and it's never over. Like you, you can hardly ever say that, okay, I'm so pure now, and I'm so cured, and I'm so balanced that the risk is never there anymore. Because when, even after you've dealt with it successfully, whatever the addiction is, unless you've really fully transformed yourself, when stresses arise and when pressures arise or when emotional pain arises, there's still that temptation to go for the addictive escape. In a lot of your work, you present compassion as an important element that is needed for the treatment of addicts. How does society measure that compassion? And I mean, do you think that we're getting better at measuring this or worse? Well, compassion is simply recognizing that people don't behave in self-destructive or negative ways because they're bad people, but because they've suffered and they're trying to deal with their suffering, not in a very optimal way, but, but like addiction is a, is a response to suffering. So once you recognize that people are trying to soothe their pain, how can you, how can you ostracize and punish them for, for being in pain and for not knowing how to deal with their pain? So compassion is just a recognition that underneath every dysfunctional human behavior and every 
negative impact of those dysfunctional behaviors, there's actually deep human suffering that's causing it in the first place. Is there, I mean, how do you define um, the hungry ghost phenomena? The hungry ghost is a Buddhist fra- phrase. The, in the Buddhist cosmology, sometimes they talk about the, um, the six realms that we all travel through, that we all cycle through. So there's the human realm, which is our ordinary selves. Then there's the animal realm, which is our appetites and our drives and our passions, our hungers, you might say. Then there is the hell realm, which is terror and fear and rage, you know, our, our, our most scary and difficult emotions. And anyway, and we go through these realms. Like sometimes you're in one realm, sometimes you're in another. The hungry ghost realm is a realm in which the creatures are depicted as ones with large, empty bellies, small, scrawny necks, tiny mouths. In other words, there's this huge emptiness inside them that they can never fill. Well, that's the addictive realm. Addictions are all about trying to fill this emptiness from the outside, and you never can. And it's not that somebody's always in one realm or the other. I mean, I might go through all the six realms in one day, or you might, you know. And the addictive realm is when we're in that space of emptiness where we try and fill ourselves from the outside, usually to escape from the hell realm of too much suffering and so on. So so the Hungry Ghost is a, a Buddhist symbol for that desperation to fill the emptiness from the outside, which addiction uh, manifests. You know, what do you what do you think distinguishes us from other animals? I mean, I don't I don't usually see like lions or giraffes snorting cocaine. I mean, why? What makes us different? Well, but you can make animals addicted if you put them in a laboratory and you make them suffer. So that in in, in environments where 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 a creature can be their true selves, you will not see suffering. Yeah. You, you will not see addiction. You might see suffering, but you won't see addiction. But when you deprive creatures of the capacity to be themselves and to, and, and to deal with their issues according to their full capacities, you're going to see addiction. So what are, what are your own personal beliefs? Do you have any spiritual beliefs? The reality is that people are spiritual creatures. Um, what I mean by that is that we have a need, not just a need, but it's in our nature to be connected to something larger than our egos. Now, we live in a society that basically says you're individualistic, aggressive egos, that's who you are. And that the pursuit of happiness, which means the pursuit of pleasure and wealth, is the highest goal there is, which is a denial of who we actually are. So this society, by nature, creates suffering, by its very basic ethic, creates suffering. So people do have these spiritual needs because it's part of their nature. And, it's, and, and our, basically, our needs all have to do with our true nature. So, so our true nature is that we need love and connection and uh, compassion. We need to give these and we need to receive these. And we also need a connection with something larger than we are because we are connected to something larger than we are. And so that the denial of those needs is the denial of our nature. And so spirituality, which is... Again, spirituality is a is a very vague word. It, it could could mean specific religious beliefs for some people, but it could be a very open ended search for meaning for other people. We all have to find for ourselves what our particular spiritual pursuit or path is. But spirituality is simply part of who we are, and I used to deny that. I mean, I didn't used to realize that growing up and 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 being a very militant atheist, you know, in, in my younger years and. 
it's something that as I grow, I want to say older, but really I believe more mature, I'm recognizing that spirituality is actually, there's nothing wondrous about it, it's simply who we are. You co-founded uh, Compassion for Addiction. Can you tell us about that organization? It's a nonprofit that's just getting off the ground, and its intention is to, and you know, you can look it up, compassionforaddiction.org, I think, and I think compassion is, compassion, and then the number four, addiction. Um, it's simply what we were talking about before, that the, the, the prevailing view of addiction right now uh, in the Western world is either it's a choice, a bad, evil, morally flawed choice that people make, for which they need to be punished and ostracized, or it's a brain disease based on genetic factors. Well, I'm saying it's neither a choice, nor is it a brain disease, but actually what it is, it's a response to suffering that demands compassion if you're going to treat it with any kind of success. Do you think that there are some addictions that kind of go under the radar or undiagnosed? Well, there's many addictions in our society. <clears throat> and, and as I said, any behavior that you crave, find pleasure or relief in, negative consequences. So, addiction to power. Politicians suffer from addiction to power. Look at them. They can't give it up. You know, I mean, how many politicians are able to give it up? How they fight to hold on to it, despite the negative uses to which they put that power. And very often negative for themselves in terms of their family lives. The, the addiction to wealth. Look at the addiction to wealth that leads to the destruction of the environment. And it's so ironic, you know, we say to the individual addict, how can you inject this harmful substance into yourself that's going to kill you? And then we're injecting all these harmful substances into the earth, into the environment, into the oceans. That's going to kill us. But which addiction is more deleterious in its consequences? The individual person's heroin or cocaine or crystal meth habit? Or the addiction to wealth that causes us to kill the very environment on which our life depends? But these things go under the radar as addictions. We don't see them as addictions. Nobody goes to treatment for wealth addiction. Why do you think stress plays such a major role in this? Well, stress is um, not, not, not an emotional state of being upset. Stress is actually a physiological response of the body to any kind of threat. So if I, if I were to threaten you right now or, or somehow mistreat you, if I had the power to do that, then your body would go into a stress mode. You'd have high levels of stress hormones, adrenaline and cortisol, which would help you escape or to fight back. So stress is a necessary response to a short-term threat. But in the long term, those same substances that in the short term help you escape, in the long term they make you sick. So adrenaline, the stress hormone from your adrenal gland, help you escape in the short term. In the long term gives you heart disease, strokes, anxiety, and so on. High blood pressure. In the short term, cortisol suppresses inflammation, helps you gain more sugar so they give more energy for the fight or flight response, but in the long term, suppresses your immune system, makes you depressed, interferes with your memory, gives you Alzheimer's, thins your bones, gives you osteoporosis, 
ulcers, heart disease, on and on and on and on. So when you live in a society, when you look at what stresses people, what stresses people is threat, what stresses people is uncertainty, lack of information, loss of control, conflict. Now, if you, if, you, if you understand that, you see what a stressful society we live in, that means that people's physiology is day-to-day -day being challenged by chronic stress. And no wonder, then, you have a population in North America where over 50% of adults have some kind of chronic illness and, and, or mental illness and, you know, physical illness, diabetes, high blood pressure, heart disease, cancer, rheumatoid arthritis, whatever it is. These are all stressors and different diseases. They're the impacts of long-term stress that's very often traceable back to childhood experience again. But again, which the medical profession treats as isolated biological entities, and we don't see the connection between people's stressful lives and the harmful effect on their bodies. But stress is a huge impact. And when it comes to addiction, of course, I didn't ask you what your addictive behavior was, and I'm not going to ask you now. But if you look at yourself, you'd probably agree with me that when were you most likely to relapse into addictive behaviors when you were stressed? So, so that whether you're trying to understand the illness, physical or mental, or addiction, stress is a huge factor. So then, how, I mean, how do we how do we reduce stress in our lives, and how do we address the physiological impacts of our everyday jobs and what we're doing? Well, I mean, that's the that's what I'm addressing in this book, Toxic Culture. Uh, it's very, first of all, it's very difficult, and let's face it, it's not an individual question. It's very much a cultural, political, and racial, and gender, and ethnic question, because my capacity as a Caucasian, middle-class physician to address the stress in my life is far more um, privileged than if I was, say, a, a poor black single mother and living in Alabama under conditions of racism and deprivation. So, so partly we're looking at broad social political questions that can only be answered on the social, political, economic level. And, 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 and one way to address that is through people's movements that arise in response to unfairness and oppression and suffering, so you, you can't you can't separate this from social movements and social factors. On an individual level, uh, we have to be aware of stress. In other words, that it takes a lot of mindful awareness to be aware of how we actually stress ourselves. What beliefs do I have that stress me? So, if I believe that my value depends on impressing other people, then I'll spend my whole life trying to um, get other people to value me, and I will do all kinds of things that stress me, but I'll do it because I believe that my value depends on what these others think of me. Well, if I'm going to deal with that, I have to understand and be aware of what my fundamental beliefs are. Oh. I get it. I believe that my value depends on what somebody else thinks of me. Well, where did I get that idea from? Oh, I'm, oh, I know. I got that idea because that's how I stayed in relation with my parents, by trying to impress them all the time. 
do I still need to be controlled by a belief that I developed as a two-year-old? Well, that takes some psychological awareness. That takes a lot of internal work. That takes a lot of mindfulness work in the present so that we can be aware of when these thoughts and beliefs arise and so that they don't control our behavior. So in answer to your question, it takes a lot of work to be aware of stress and uh, to recognize its social and economic sources and also to recognize its sources in the beliefs that I have developed about myself that I continue to harbor unconsciously and which continue to run my life. Yeah, I like that answer. Do you have any single piece of advice that for someone who may be suffering from addiction that is listening to this show that you can give? It may sound self-serving, but what they need to do is first of all really understand what's happening with them. So they need to be compassionate about themselves. They need to understand that they're not bad people, that they, they're not stupid, that this wasn't a mistake on their part. But actually, the addiction, whatever the form it took or takes, is a response to suffering that they may not even have recognized. And the best way to understand that is to read my book on addiction in the realm of your ghost, or to look at my one of my many, many talks, YouTube talks on addiction, like the, the, the TEDx talk I gave called The Power of Addiction and, and the Addiction to Power, which is a 20-minute talk. In other words, or check out the website, uh, uh, Compassion for Addiction. I don't mean to bring it back to myself for purely self-serving reasons. It's just that this view of addiction as a response to suffering, I think I articulate it more clearly than anybody else that I know. And the fact that I do so is just the f reflects the failure of our system to understand what it's all about. Now. I'm not the source of all this information. There's many, many studies that show this, but I think I bring them together in a way that speaks to people. So I, I'm not going to be shy about it and say to people, look, check out the work and find out if it's true for you. But begin with the compassionate recognition that it's not your fault and that it's not a mistake, but that actually it was a response to suffering that you may not even have recognized in yourself. And I need to say something here about trauma, which is that there's the obvious trauma of sexual abuse or abandonment or a parent dying or a parent beating another parent or a parent being jailed or, uh, or a rancorous divorce that you may have experienced when you were very small and, and you went through all that stress. There's that obvious trauma. But there's another kind of trauma which we call developmental trauma, which doesn't have to do with terrible things happening, but with good things not happening. Remember I talked about the human need for being understood and, and compassion and love and all that. Well, your parents may have tried to do their best, but what if they were stressed? What if they were uh, distressed? What if they were distracted? What if they were too troubled by life and they couldn't give you that attunement? They couldn't give you that acceptance. They couldn't give you that holding environment that you as a sensitive little infant needed. Then you also were traumatized. But you may not perceive yourself as being traumatized because you may say rightly, well, my parents loved me. Yes, your parents loved you, but they didn't give you what you needed. And that itself is traumatic. And that affects the brain, that affects how you see yourself, and that gives you a lot of pain, which you try and soothe through addictive behavior. So it takes compassion for the self. And that's, if you want one piece of advice, it's have some compassionate curiosity for yourself. Instead of judging yourself, 
be curious. Oh, why did I do that? Why did I do that? What's the reason? What happened? And allow that curiosity to be infused with compassion instead of self-judgment. So it's not, why did I do that? Why was I such an idiot? So why did I do that? But, huh, given that I'm not an idiot, given that I'm a good human being, why did I, why did I do all that stuff? What's the explanation? So it's compassionate curiosity. Yeah, I think that's a very powerful message, sir. Uh, where can people find your work? The website is www.drgabormate.com, D-R-G-A-B-O-R-M-A-T.com, and a lot of my YouTube lectures, you can watch, you know, there's no cost, you just go there, you can watch these lectures, these talks, a lot of my articles, chapters from my books are there, so that's probably a good place to begin. Well, Dr. Mate, I, I really do appreciate your time, thank you so much for being here. <laughs>